So we're going to uh, be into Hebrews again, of course, in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 21. It's a long section of scripture, at least it seems that way. Um, go into that. Um, I want to pray, and then we'll kind of dig in. Um, I did want to say that the, the good, a good portion of this is about this mysterious guy, uh, Melchizedek. Um, there's not a lot known about him. Um, there's a lot of talk about him, and if you look, look him up in commentaries and that sort of thing, there's a whole bunch of stuff. But um, we're going to try to dig through that and then get to the meat of the passage, really, which would be the second half of what we're looking at today. Um, and that is how this all relates to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for... Um, well, thank you, Father, for being our Father, um, that you call us your children, that you love us beyond any possible way that we could love even our own kids. Um, just the thought of that, Lord, is, is overwhelming um, at best. So, Father, I ask that you're with us today as we take a look at Hebrews 7 and, um, and dig into what it is you've done as a father through your one and only son, Jesus Christ, providing him as a, a means by which that we can again draw near to you. Father, that your plan has been established since the beginning of time. And God, your love is immeasurable. So help us to see that, to learn from that, to grow in that, Father, and to live with that knowledge in our heart. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like often um, is stated from this, this uh, pulpit, would be that in order to really go forward in what we're looking at today, we need to kind of go back just a little bit. Um, and we're not going to go far back, because the very end of chapter 6 is where I just wanted to read a little bit of that, so we have a, a base by which we're going to now look into this man, uh, Melchizedek, and what he represents So in chapter 6, verse 19, it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we'll begin reading in chapter 7, verse 1, and we're going to read on through verse 21. And we'll read the whole thing and then come back to uh, how we break this up a little bit. But it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man is, see how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, 
from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident When another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So the first section of the scripture, that would be verses 1 through 10, if we split this up, basically, are, are speaking of discussing Melchizedek. Um, and the second section of the scripture would be 11 through 21, where it draws out points relating to Jesus. Um, and so we're not going to be able to really unpack the entire scripture today. There's not, there's, like I said, if you get into commentary, it just goes on and on and on. Um, especially about Melchizedek. But um, what we can say is that uh, we begin here with the obvious point. And the obvious point is that the scripture is speaking of priesthood. Specifically, Jesus is of a greater priesthood. The author, again, makes, uh, takes this methodical method uh, through his uh, thought processes and ideas um, to show this better priesthood. And he's like, if we look back in chapter 6 at the end that I read before, he's like, look, people, pay attention here. We, we have this steadfast anchor. We have a hope that enters into the interplace, meaning the Holy of Holies, enters into the, this interplace behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for us. 
that, that's a big deal, especially considering the audience in which the author is speaking to, and that is the Hebrews. Um, that, in and of itself, when you get a picture in your mind of the temple and what that means, that now there is access to this, this place that, was, that no one could enter except the high priest once a year. Um, the Bible it really is, uh, well, it's not a collection of just self-help stories and moral ideas and that sort of thing. Um, it's not an instruction manual on how to fix a particular problem you're living with today. Um, it can, in fact, do all of those things. There's no question about that. But ultimately, the Bible is, well, it's a story of redemption. That's what it is. See, Jesus is the only answer to the big problem faced by us all. And that's sin. I'll say that again. Jesus is the only answer to the big problem faced by us all. Sin. So the story of the Bible paints for us a picture of the big problem and God's merciful solution. Here in our scripture today, we're going to have laid out for us this very idea. Um, we must have a mediator. We must have a high priest to intercede on our behalf. Almighty God is infinitely holy. There's no possible way we can approach him without a mediator that would stand in the gap, if you will, for us. God requires blood. He requires sacrifice for the atonement of sins and our forgiveness of our own sins. That's a requirement by this holy, infinitely holy God. So the story of the Bible is this. God's holiness, our sinfulness, and our absolute need for a Savior. Jesus Christ is our high priest, our king, and our salvation. He's a solution that God has provided since the beginning of time itself. So Jesus is, for us, the great high priest and king. Jesus is, for us, the great high priest and king. So looking back in Hebrews, um, we have the very first reference of Jesus as a high priest in chapter 2, verse 17, and it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then again in, in chapter 5, just a few weeks back, in verse 8 it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And, uh, oh, where am I? Oh, there we go. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The author seems to assume his audience is familiar with this Melchizedek person. Um, in chapter 7 is where we really pick up kind of where the author has left off back in chapter 5, but he adds a lot more deal, uh, detail, specifically the significance of this man uh, and his continual priesthood and kingship, making the order of Melchizedek distinctive. There's something different about that from 
the, uh, from the people of, of the Hebrews in which this author is speaking to, there's something very different about it. So as we read in the actual account, back in Genesis, which we'll get to in just a second, Salem's significance isn't that of a, uh, of a location as much as it is an attribute. The meaning of the word uh, is, is twofold. It's a location, most likely deemed Jerusalem, um, or at least the area of Jerusalem. But in, in the uh, idea of the attribute, it is peace. It also means that. And then again, in this, in this narrative that we'll read, Abraham's victory over the kings is really not the point. Uh, but Melchizedek's blessing him and Abraham's giving tithes to this high priest is truly the point, showing that Melchizedek's superiority um, is affirmed by Abraham himself, the patriarch. So regarding this man, Melchizedek, there's very little information about him in the Bible, really. Cons- uh, considered a mysterious character, we find him in just two spots in the Old Testament. One would be in Genesis 14, the other being in Psalms 110. The author points out this priestly order is of a very different kind. Not by what is stated in Genesis 14, but actually by what is not stated. And that is lineage, genealogy. No father, no mother, no beginning, no or end. The order of Melchizedek is a priesthood completely different than that of the order of Aaron. So in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, it says, After his return from the defeat of Catalaomor, I think I got that right, um, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. That would give us the idea that it's around Jerusalem, since that's where the king's valley is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and he, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of, all the, of everything, but gave him a tenth of all the spoils in the battle that he had just won. It's interesting because here we have a, a high priest king in the area of Jerusalem 400 to 500 years prior to Moses and the people of uh, the Israelites coming into the promised land. We have this man that is a high priest of the one true God. Being his location is where it is. It's easy, it's simple to assume that this man was a Canaanite. The arch enemies of the Israelites some four to five hundred years before. The interesting point in that is that God has made himself known to mankind since the beginning of time. And we have a Canaanite king priest who obviously had a people that he ruled over in the area of Jerusalem, and just four to five hundred years later, suddenly they became the enemies of Israel because of their idol worship. And uh, just God said, basically, Joshua, 
destroy them. And so that's what they set out to do some four or five hundred years later. But the next, next place that we find him spoken of is in Psalm 110, verse 4. And it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is God speaking about his son Jesus Christ, although it does not say that in the, in the scripture itself. So if it were not for the mention of Melchizedek in this book of Hebrews, Melchizedek would just be a shadowy figure appearing and then disappearing in, Abraham, in the storyline of Abraham. Um, but the author brings about much more light about this, this man, Melchizedek. Here in our scripture reading, Melchizedek becomes much more than this. He is... Um, a man that demonstrates a priestly order older than the Levitical priesthood by some 450 years. A, priest, a priestly order in which Jesus, from the tribe of Judah, is made to be a part of by the Lord himself, as we read in Psalm 110. So Hebrews 7 is a point in the book in which uh, we find ourselves now looking at one of the mainstreams of thought in Hebrews. Jesus is a high priest of a priestly order in which the imperfect law is replaced, set aside. He is also the anointed priest, prophet, and king. The old has now been made new in him. So looking into the first three scriptures of chapter 7, we learn Melchizedek's name is king of righteousness and king of peace. Seems to be a connection there. He is also without father or mother or genealogy and resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. So, like I had mentioned, there's much speculation about this man, Melchizedek, and specifically having to do with the living forever part. Um, there is all sorts of theories and, and that sort of thing. I mean, some of, the, some of them would, would be that he's a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Um, others would be that he's a, uh, one of the archangels uh, made as man um, or even the embodiment of the Holy Spirit is another one. But really what it boils down to, um, we only know what, the scripture actually tells us. We have three verses that actually speak of historical narrative about this individual. That's it. In the entirety of the Bible. And then, of course, he's mentioned again in Psalm 110. But all we know for cer- certain is that this mysterious figure closely is a closely associated with God who has eschat- eschatological implications or implications related to death, judgment, uh, the final destiny of our souls. So the author's thought flow here is basically this. In verse 1, Melchizedek is a priest of God, most high, and is greater than Abraham. Verse 2, he's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Verse 3, he's without genealogy and resembling Jesus, he continues forever. But what the, what the author of Hebrews is doing here really is it seems as though he's not so much interested in the fact that there's no genealogy. 
I mean, that's critical to the Hebrews, obviously, because they follow in, in the book of Genesis. You know, we have all the stories that are there, but we also have the history, the family history of every individual there, um, except with an exception or so, and this is one of them, that Melchizedek has no, has no uh, history, no lineage whatsoever. So what I believe the author is telling us here, he's not so much arguing that Melchizedek never died, but that he's a type of Christ in that um, he lives on forever so in verses 4 through 10 we see the author explain more fully his previous points and that is how great this man was whom Abraham the patriarch gave he gave a tithe to this high priest Melchizedek also Abraham received a blessing thereby submitting to the authority of this priesthood and we see in verse 7 and it says it's beyond dispute that the superior blesses the inferior. It shows that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Abraham himself shows his sons, the Levitical priesthood, the greatness of this king and high priest who lives. And since the Levitical priesthood descends from Abraham, the priesthood of Melchizedek is, of course, a greater priesthood. So it is this point that we kind of transition in, in the scripture to more about what Christ is and relating him to this priestly king that was met, uh, ran out to meet Abraham after a battle. But Jesus is our eternal king, our high priest, and our salvation. So in verses 11 through 17, we have first in verse 11 a conditional statement it says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one just named after the order of Aaron? Why change anything if it was working? The author presses in on this point that the Levitical priesthood was unable to bring about perfection and a new, greater priesthood was necessary in order to do that. It's the only thing that could provide actual salvation. And that was in verse 11. The Levitical system was a special provision by which the imperfect could approach God by means of different sacrifices and offerings. And so I'll go through briefly a little bit about that. In, in the law, the first five books, specifically Leviticus, God spells out the requirements and the duties of the priesthood. So the tribe of Levi was called out for the service of the priestly duties in the tabernacle um, and later, of course, in the temple. The Levites were, Levites were not allowed to own or possess any land, any property, so that their lives were dedicated to God and his tabernacle and his people. All other Israelites gave tithe in support of this ministry and priestly tribe. The people of the tribe of Levi also all had a job to do. Obviously, there's priests. We've got that. Um, but there's musicians, there's judges, there's guards, there are those that put up and took down the tabernacle. 
And based on the amount of sacrifices that they did, I'm sure that there was a cleaning crew as well. Um, so the priests officiated over different types of offerings, such as the Passover offering, sin offerings, guilt offerings, prayer over and release of the scapegoat, burn offerings, peace offerings, heave offerings, meal offerings, drink offerings, incense offerings, thanks offerings, and on the list goes. <laughs> uh, each of these having a specific method for sacrifice. Most were in place to atone for sin. Problem being, they sacrificed daily, every day. So the atonement of sin was a temporary atonement. They also uh, were engaged in many different rites and rituals, um, blessings, redemption of the firstborn, various purification rites and the like. Uh, We need to recognize that all these were put in place because of this big problem that they face and we still face today, and that is sin. God put them into place out of love for his people. It's also put them into place to prepare people for a coming better priest. God requires atonement. He requires purity for the forgiveness of sin. The law did not by itself possess the power to perfect the worshiper. The connection of the law to the Aaronic priesthood was foundational to the people, even those that this author is writing to in Hebrews. It was a part of who they were. So the idea even... Uh, to a believer in the day that it, it's like it's like when we go to Africa and uh, we talk to a person that that's of the religion of Islam and they they determine that they're going to follow Jesus their entire world is rocked everything that they once knew is no more so much so that often they're literally giving up everything that they once had. Any possible connection to family, any possible connection to their history and all that. And that's what the Israelites that convert to Christianity are looking at and dealing with daily. This is the reason why such care and time was given to this point by the author, I believe. And this makes the point that with a new priesthood, it brings with it a new covenant because the old covenant does not apply The law given by Moses is now repealed by God in Jesus Christ. And so I can't help think of a number of Christians uh, today who see things in this very same light. Applying the gospel, but then adding some religion to it. Some other thing besides Jesus Christ. Um, I think I find myself even doing that. You know, there's nothing wrong with the disciplines of being a Christian. Your your prayer life, your your reading your Bible, your study time, your meditation, all those things are good. But if my heart is not where it's supposed to be in doing that, too often I can feel as though I'm doing that to accomplish something instead of just worshiping what's already been done. So... 
we seem to think that, it, that our holiness is somehow earned, or at least, like I say, I find myself there, unfortunately, too often. But I must remind myself to hold fast to the truth. And uh, in Jesus Christ, he's done it all. There's no... It's a hard thing for me to swallow. I don't know about you, but it's a hard thing to really get a hold of. That it's done. So this new high priest, as we read in verse 16, is greater than Abraham, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. Even more, he comes like Melchizedek without legal appointment, but by the power of an indestructible life. We were just talking about this a little bit earlier in, um, in the Equip Hour, that everything hinges on the indestructible life of Jesus Christ. With that indestructible life, in our faith in Jesus Christ, it offers us the very same thing, an indestructible life in Christ. We have a place that we're, this is not home. We have a place in which we are going. The Christian believers to whom the author writes have had their ears tickled by religion other than the simple gospel of grace that they heard. Like them, we often experience the same desire for a spectacle. We're looking for the smoke, all the colored lights and flashing on the stage um, and and the the loud music, if you will. Uh, I think we get it's people, we get caught up in that as well, the experience, right? But ultimately, they were flirting with having something more, caught up in this idea that the gospel that they did have needed something else. And it makes me think of where all this sin originally came from, Adam and Eve. They were missing something. God was holding back from them, and so they had to have it. We find ourselves in the very same place, I believe. So, what more do we actually need? Why do we struggle? Why do we strive so much to do all these things for even our comfort and or um, looking good, appearances, and all that sort of thing? We have everything. It's just like I read in the very first part, before we even got into this scripture... We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters to the inner place behind the curtain. This is where no man had gone except for a high priest. Now the high priest, our high priest, has gone there and suddenly the curtain is open. So I want to tell you a little story. It's about a fictitious guy that I kind of made up in my head. But in in looking up uh, all these... uh, all this information about the sacrificial system and what they did and how it all worked. Um, I'll just say, there's a, some guy that existed. I, we're going to call him Jim. I don't know. We'll call him Jim. He was uh, a part of the uh, Israelites that had come out of Egypt. He was a young man when he left Egypt, a, a boy. And uh, he's moved from camp to camp to camp with the people of Israel. He's gotten older. He's grown up. Um, as a young man, he'd seen all the, all the things that, that we all kind of desire to see. I mean, I don't know about you, I'd be pretty impressed to see an entire Egyptian army destroyed by uh, uh, the, the Red Sea falling in on top of them. Um, 
They saw the pillar of smoke and fire, or fire and cloud, I'm sorry. Um, they saw, he saw uh, Moses come down from Sinai bringing the law. And now, many, many years later, as the eldest son, he has, he's caring for his parents, he has his family, and lots of kids. And uh, he's waiting day to day, waiting and wondering when the promised land will come when they're going to be able to get there. So one morning he wakes up and he goes out from his tent and he looks in the, in the pen that he has there and he, finds, he looks at the ram that he's been carrying for for the last year. It's now old enough. So he goes inside the, the pen, inspects his ram, and it's perfect. There's no flaws on this, he's, so he's excited. He's been dealing with some struggle. He's been arguing a little bit more with his wife. The kids are driving him nuts. You know, uh, life's getting tough, but I got this ram, and I'm going to go take this ram and get things squared away, and it's all going to be better tomorrow, right? So he takes this ram the next morning, and he takes it down to the, takes it up to the uh, tent of meeting. There he meets the priest that he'd made arrangements with. They go in. He keeps to the right of the altar, um, recognizing that this brazen altar burning in front of him just beyond that is, well, where Christ has already gone for us. The Holy of Holies. And all of a sudden, this sense of the presence of God is all over him. And suddenly he starts getting scared. Starts realizing, what if, what if this isn't good enough? You know, what if there's something actually wrong with this ram that I, I, I didn't see? But he steps to the right of the altar being on the north side because that's where you do your burnt offerings. Across from the altar there is a table and the knife in which he is to perform his sacrifice. So he places his hands on the head of the ram, which was customary, and he sacrifices, well, he prays, transferring his sin to the ram. He prays, and for the sake of all in the audience, he sacrifices his ram. The priest then takes a little bit of the, some of the blood from that ram, and he throws it against the altar. In the meantime, uh, Jim is cutting up this ram to be put on the altar by the priest to be completely consumed by fire. So he's standing there waiting for all this to actually happen. The priest is praying. He's praying to himself, Lord, forgive me of my sin. The heat, the smoke surrounding him, finally it's, it's all done. The priest says, okay, you're good. You can go. And so he walks back to his little tent and he says, Lord, let this sacrifice be pleasing to you until the next time, right? We don't, we don't have to do that any longer. We don't need to live that way, but we often do. When we go about our lives building up our little kingdoms, from time to time we, we feel some conviction. We come to church or something, and something's said, and suddenly we're convicted, and we, we, we recognize our brokenness, in our need. And so we bring our offering before the Lord and we make a new commitment. 
until the next time. We don't have to live that way. We have a high priest who came and once for all was our perfect sacrifice. It's not an animal for my sin. This is a man, a perfect, spotless man for man. It's a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the better hope through which his sacrifice and blood give us the ability to draw close to God. Jesus is the better hope through which his sacrifice and blood give us the ability to draw close to God. In verses 18 through 21, the author again emphasizes the inability of the law to make anything perfect. In verse 18, it says, the former commandment is set aside. In verse 19, because it makes nothing perfect. All things being utterly ineffective for salvation. But then, at the end of verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What a glorious thing. The combination of his being a descendant from kingship via the tribe of Judah and Melchizedek's priesthood, his right to priesthood is given by God with an oath in verses 20 and 21 based on different grounds completely but irrefutably they transcend the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is the perfect priest and king. You see, the best we can possibly hope for is to be imperfect. Just like the Levitical priesthood, that's the best we can possibly do. Therefore, the only hope we have is to to draw near to God is our hope in this high priest who perfectly stands in our place for our sins. And that's Jesus Christ. This king and high priest became the better hope because through his sacrifice, for those who believe, we now have access to the inner place and can draw near to God. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience. He was the perfect sacrifice. He bled for us. He died for us on the cross and resurrected for us on the third day. Living forever as our better hope, our high priest. But let's, not go, let's not neglect something that I, I, I'm afraid I, I don't want to skip over. Back in, when I read Genesis 14, verse 18, Melchizedek brings Abraham something. He brings him out bread and wine. There's some significance there. It's amazing to me that back some 450 years ago before the Levitical priesthood even existed, this bread and this wine was offered to the father of Israel. Just as we're going to see in just, a, we're going to have in just a moment, the bread and, bread and wine that the father is offering us through Jesus Christ. Um, it, it, it just changes things to recognize that we no longer have to concern ourselves with taking our ram before the Lord and hoping that he's perfect. 
it's been done. We have an ability, because of this bread and wine thing back in Genesis, we have the ability to recognize its significance. Right? I mean, I don't know that the people back in the day where Jim is bringing his offering probably knew of the story, but I don't know that he knew the, the significance of what that really meant. But we have that ability, and we can trust in his name knowing that because of that, there is access to the inner place. So in John uh, 19, verse 30, in closing, one of the last things our high priest said, he said, it's finished. It is finished. And then another gospel in Matthew 27 the moment he breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Access has been granted. Come in and draw near to your God. Let's pray.